Welcome, welcome. This is lucky number eight, the eighth episode of Post Poet Pop, coming to you live from downtown Louisville, Kentucky. But it may feel like today you are being transported to our more packed-in, Lake Michigan-facing, hot dog-famous double baseball neighbor to the north. That's it. The shy, the windy, Chicago, you know it. And that is because we are focusing on the work and thought of Chicago-based poet and scholar Toby Altman. While Toby has published a plethora of poetry and prose and operates out of a wide range of registers, we're going to hear from and hone in on his soon-to-be-released book, Discipline Park, or will be published and selected as an editor's pick by Wendy Subway. Discipline Park is a comprehensive work that documents the demolition of the Prentice Women's Hospital in Chicago, as well as other landmarks of architectural brutalism designed by Bertrand Goldberg. Toby, as you will hear, was born in that hospital, and then later in his life, when he was employed by Northwestern University, he bore witness to it being torn down. This rather unconscious journey is filled with the coincidences and ephemera of demolition and observance, and it reactivates a more passive understanding of buildings and bodies and turns that into something quite necessary for our times. I met Toby last year at the Louisville Conference um, at the University of Louisville, and while it may seem like that conference is off limits to the public, it is not, and it is coming up, so look into that. I saw Toby give a presentation at that conference, and I was pretty blown away by his poetics and his work, so I couldn't wait to talk to him and put him on post-poet pop. I appreciate his work not only because it's unique or different in its poetics and approach, but because it's now a moon in orbit around the architectural effort and life of Bertrand Goldberg's buildings. It extends one archive while bridging another. I hope y'all get some beauty and connection from Toby's work as well. So let's get into it. Wanting them, demons and old friends, pops, they hunting them. 
The chosen one from the land of the frozen sun With drunk nights can remember more than sober ones Walk like warriors, we were never told to run Explored the world to return to where my soul begun Never looking back or too far in front of me The present is a gift and I just want to be So I was born in Prentice Women's Hospital, which was designed by Bertrand Goldberg and completed in 1975. Uh, and I worked for Northwestern University. I was a graduate student there um, in the years when Northwestern demolished it to make way for a kind of glassy new anonymous medical center. Um, and so as an employee of the university, I would receive press releases from them, uh, usually at very odd hours, like two or three in the morning celebrating their victories in court over the preservationists who were fighting to preserve uh, the building. And I, you know, I just started collecting the press releases on my computer. I just had a Word document um, with all of these press releases in them because they felt, it felt really weird to get, to get these uh, sort of triumphant celebrations of the university that I worked for and that I depended on for my rent and, you know, my food and all these kinds of things celebrating its destruction of this kind of symbol of my uh, my own life and my um, connection to Chicago and
have accomplished with buildings or architecture in your poetics reminds me of what Cole Swenson did with manicured green spaces, where there's both like lyrical and artifact-driven documentarian elements in, in, in your work. And, um, you know, it helps, helps me situate myself as a reader there with a reference point. But, but it, it makes me interested in, in what active choices you made to kind of bring these poetics together because, you know, you have work before Discipline Park that's very different than Discipline Park. It's a good question, um, and I, I'm glad that you asked it because it, it's one that I've definitely thought a lot about. Um, I think that Arcadia, Indiana, my first book, as you mentioned, is a kind of first play, and it's it's really written in conversation with Renaissance poetics. I, I was trained as a Renaissance literature scholar, um, so I was kind of thinking through like the the resources of that body of work and and trying to think about how it could be useful to like an experimental writing practice in the present. Um, and I think I got to the end of that project. This would have been in like maybe 2014. Uh, I finished writing it. Um, and I just kind of felt like I'd gone as far as I could with that body of work. I, I, know, I mean, I think somebody else could probably um, take it and develop it further and find new things. But, but for me personally, I felt like I'd kind of exhausted my, my interest in, in that way of working and, and maybe felt like I pushed it as far as it could go. Um, and so I really, when I started working on Discipline Park, I was very consciously thinking about sort of striking out and creating a new poetics for myself, which would give me a new space to kind of experiment and work. Um, and, I, you know, in general, I think that's a really productive challenge for me as a poet. Like, I think that I produce my best work when I'm trying to do something that I'm uncomfortable with or that I've never done before um, or that that is sort of weird or unusual for me. Um, and so in every book that I've worked on, I've, I've always tried to take on a, a kind of practice that um, I, in order to accomplish the project of the book, I would kind of have to teach myself how to write a poem again from scratch. <laughs> and I, I, you know, I think, you know, my students sometimes will ask me like, what, what is a poem or what is poetry? And my answer to them is always like, if I knew the answer to that question, I would probably stop writing poetry. Like it's, it's the experience <laughs> yeah. of discovering what a poem is that really motivates me and keeps me pursuing the art. Uh, and, and so I, in Discipline Park, I was, I was very much thinking about incorporating a new set of resources, trying on new voices, um, and, um, and, and sort of experimenting with different models of what a poem could be from, from where my work had been up to that point. Bye. <laughs> 
castle chin and taciturn You know I'd rather turn and burn a scale this edifice, yeah Where's my accomplice? So take my hand, we'll do more than stand Take my hand, we'll claim this land Take my hand and we'll let the ride roll Only the dead feast on images. Only the image is a balm in lead, always budding so that each season ends with the leading brand of beauteous roof. Now, my friends, are roses of shadow, roses of shale, lapped in lead. As a child, I stole a stone-hard pear and let it rot under my bed. As a child, I came to identify with the camera, the way it frames the human body as a garden of melting petroleum. Upon closer inspection, with instruments more powerful than the genital eye, it disaggregates into a fulsome garden, fields of thistle and wet asparagus, bonesy bitter and cordial lavender. Meanwhile, the plastic is burned into its flesh, forming, as it were, a suture. It signifies a tongue, an exposition of dark speech. All its receipts were found under trial to be falsified. As I was looking into it, it seemed demonically ironic that the new tagline for Northwestern Medicine Prentice Women's Hospital, which I guess they kept the name, just kind of... Mm-hmm. Yeah, know, and moved it to a different building. Respectful. <laughs> really yeah, it's on a different yeah. building. So the, the tagline, like the marketing tagline, is on a relentless pursuit of better medicine. Relentless was just, <laughs> just so shocking. Um, you know, as a term in that tagline, you know, and I know you situate your work in one way, at least is oppositional to neoliberalism or neoliberal pursuits. I didn't, I didn't know that was their tagline. That's fabulous. (laughs) I wish I had known that. That would definitely would have made its way into a poem. (laughs) Um, Sometimes people just give you things like that, that are just amazing and have to be in poem. Like once I was in, uh, I was in like a, a UPS store in Iowa city and the guy behind the counter instructed me to let my credit card marinate in the uh, credit card machine. <laughs> <laughs> like I just went home and put it in a poem. Like this is media. Love it. Um, anyway, yeah, that poem is um, that poem. I think is is maybe the earliest poem in the book. Um, and one of the things that's been really pleasurable as I've been preparing for the book to come out is to uh, is to go back to some of these poems that I wrote now almost ten years ago um, and. And revisit them, and I feel like I'm revisiting them as a reader rather than as 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 the author of them. Um, they they don't feel like the poems that I'm writing anymore, um, but I'm I'm consistently kind of astonished, and um, uh, I find them really delightful and really interesting. And I, I and and I feel I feel a kind of responsibility toward them, like I've become their caretaker, which means that I feel like I you know I you could probably explain them better than I could. Like I, I find myself kind of. <laughs> kind of mystified by some of the things that they're doing and astonished by them. And that line in particular that you picked out when I was reading the poem the other day for the show, I just thought, 
what a strange move that that poem makes. I mean, it's completely unmusical. Uh, it's like a total shift in terms of diction and tone. Um, and I think that I've always wondered whether it works, but I've always, like, every time I go back and look at it, I feel like it does work, but it, it works because it's such a lateral and unexpected move. And it takes us out of this kind of, you know, I'm like making up words earlier in the poem, like bonesy is not a word. I just made that up. <laughs> I was wondering. Uh, yeah, no, definitely not. Um, and, uh, you know, it's this kind of abstract meditation on the body. And um, it's this like almost kind of pastoral. Uh, and then there's this kind of really harsh ending that just like punctures all the, the lyrical beauty of the poem and puts us back in this world of kind of neoliberal capitalism from which we thought we might have been, you know, maybe we're, we're having a kind of psychedelic relationship to it rather than a normal relationship to it or like a normative relationship to it earlier in the poem. Maybe that's a kind of programmatic move or, the, or, or I'm testing um, for the first time the move that the book wants to make, which is bringing together the space of a kind of lyric exploration of embodiment and subjectivity and um, emotion uh, with the kind of brute language of institutional life.
That was the one and only Grace Jones with the song Demolition Man. And to start out that set, we began with Common with his track B. That was followed by a bit of Toby Altman and I's conversation. And if you're just tuning in, this is Post Poet Pop, Episode 8. We are featuring the work of Toby Altman, Chicago-based poet and scholar. Then we heard from Albert King with Born Under a Bad Sign. That was followed by a little discussion on poetic choices for Toby's book, Discipline Park. And then we heard Andrew Bird's uh, Sisyphus. And then a poem from Toby Altman from Discipline Park that began with Only the Dead. It's an important time to think about the American Civil, Civil Liberties Union of Kentucky. They exist because freedom cannot protect itself. The ACLU works daily in courts, legislatures, and communities to defend and preserve individual rights and liberties. Visit aclu-ky.org. That's aclu-ky.org for more information. Follow the ACLU on social media. Stay informed. We really need them right now. So we're going to get back into it with the featured poet Toby Altman today. And here he is reading a second poem from his book, Discipline Park, soon to be published by Wendy Subway. I have an iPhone and the battery is not what it used to be. I buy smooth wrought hummus for dipping and snacking. I eat a pizza called Smack Your Spinach. I am sitting at the tyrant's table and the tyrant says, you won't find an ATM trekking through a canyon, but you will almost anywhere else. Okay but can I use your bathroom? Under the pressure of the camera, he becomes a white knife, an agony, a propensity to be injured, even as he urges the wound. Is this creature in agony? How should I know? The tool suffers the same fate as the master. Each season ends with a spectacular corpse, the tyrant whose body cannot be counted, an untimely fig shaken from the branch. The tyrant says, politics is an organized sense of dread. No, exercise after 30 is an organized sense of dread. No, the self is dread by other means. Usually the world is a weapon. Isn't the weapon wonderful? You have this, uh, you have this, I, I laughed out loud, um, question, okay, but can I use your bathroom? Um, <laughs> and it's so funny that I went to, back to New York twice last year um, in 2022. And the second time, uh, there was a day when my partner was hanging out with her friends in Manhattan, and I just kind of ended up, some plans got canceled, and I was like, oh, I've, I've got the day to myself, right? So so <laughs> I found out, you know, within a few hours that the pandemic or peak pandemic, whatever we want to call it, has changed the way, you know, going to the bathroom in Brooklyn at least operates from what I remember. And so I had to go to the bathroom and I had, I went to nine places and at some point I feel like all my, you know, cis white male dignity was just demolished. And you know, this, this one place I go in, I'm like, look, I'll buy an espresso. I'll buy a croissant. I, I just have to go to the bathroom. And this person you could tell was like, Oh, this is a human moment. And the person just goes, my employer would really frown upon that. Oh, and I was like, Oh wow. I, look, I, I understand. I'll keep looking. And you know, it just, it just, I don't know. It, it's all I could think of in that moment. And of course that <laughs> moment in your poem is, is 
you know, there's a level of irony, there's humor, and again, I think there's something like maybe slightly uh, scathing to it. You know, okay, but can I use your bathroom? <laughs> right. Yeah. No, I, it's funny you say that. I, I have off, I mean, as somebody who writes poems in public, which involves kind of moving through public space at a human level, uh, it's a problem that I have often encountered. Um, and uh, pro tip, McDonald's, you can always use the bathroom at McDonald's. <laughs> McDonald's yeah. is like a zone of chaos. Um, but I think, I mean, I think in some ways you're, you're hitting on exactly what the, the poem is thinking about in that moment because the, the preceding lines, um, which I think are, you can find, you won't find an ATM trekking through a canyon, but you will almost anywhere else are quoted from an advertisement for, for a bank that I saw while I was waiting for a bus one day. Mm. Um, so there, there is, I am trying to create this juxtaposition between the sort of human experience of moving through a space, moving through a city and the language of capital and institutional life that you encounter as you do so, which is trying to be very friendly and human and snarky and funny, but is like totally detached from the lived reality of like having a body and needing to go to the bathroom and all this kind of stuff. Um, and, and so I do think that that's very much a, a kind of dynamic of the poem. And I, and I don't think you're wrong to say that there's a lot of um, bitterness and anger in these poems. I mean, it's often kind of modulated through these sort of sardonic moments, um, but, but it's a real driving force, I think, in terms of the, um, the feeling of the poems. And, you know, I think it reflects the kind of emotional and political climate that we were living through at the time. I mean, I wrote these poems in... 2015, 2016, 2017, those were really dark and hard years. And um, I think we all felt a lot of fear and anger and confusion and without a sense of agency, right? Like there's no, there's no, you don't feel like you have any control over your, uh, the destiny of your your community in, in moments like that. Just needed some place where I could lay my head. Hey, mister, can you tell me where I can find a bed? He just grinned and shook my hand. No is all he said. Just old Luke, and Luke's waiting on the judgment. 
you see a scar beneath which the grave is mobile cutting soft trespass in the field it cannot restrain the action of your hand between your legs in this way you meet the weather the color of concrete you believe the whole person is present in her face tenderly sovereign you treat her face as a scaffold for healing tissue the minute tuning of an air conditioner as it measures the temperature of a room the weather is fragile. No one can have it. A building resists the wind by bending with it, but the strength to perish is sometimes withheld. You always leave a room when you know you're 100% done with it. You love an injured place, the heart of the rotting tree, patches of DDT on the lawn. Tomorrow is to mend, to mend instead of measure, to open the camera's aperture, to break the bonds of distance and death, granary stars that mark the limits of safe navigation. In this way, writing is trespass, the sore through which the world passes. In this way, writing is corn and soybean seeds over which the earth has closed. Museum of the Seam. When it comes to a hospital, now you think about, you, you mentioned 2016, 2017, yeah, there was this feeling of what's going to happen, right? What's right. going to happen to DACA folks? What's going to happen right. to... And now we're in this world too where there are just these buildings that are completely empty, but the espresso machines are turned on and the pretzel snacks might still be in the snack containers. And so to some degree, you know, I, I kind of find the 
as you say, the, the bitterness and the anger welcome. And, mm. you know, it's, it's, it's a reprieve voice really. And for, through so much of the poetry that, that we see. So the weather is fragile. No one can have it. I mean, it made me think of course, I mean, lately, I mean, I feel like every day I, there's, there's a disaster. Right. Um, you know, we, I, when we moved, when we left New York, we moved back to Kentucky I was looking at like rainfall totals at some point and you know Louisville gets more rain than Seattle. And then I was looking mm-hmm. yesterday and in fact in 2020 Chicago got as much rain as Seattle. I appreciate that line and I think this poem felt to me like it it was situated in this place of you know what you get and you know what is taken away and then what is kind of irredeemable on many levels. And I mean, certainly that I was, I was thinking about uh, what euphemistically gets called climate change when I was in that line. Um, and I, you know, I think that climate change is a good example of the kind of phenomenon that we're talking about where there's, there's a collective sense of the reality that we're facing, but um, not necessarily a sense of agency to, to change the facts. Um, which, you know, I think is, is just kind of a programmatic experience of the present that um, I've, I've often thought that the Greek, uh, the Greek prophetess Cassandra is the kind of figure for our times. Like we all know what's coming um, and we're all saying what's coming, uh, but nobody's listening or, or nobody in, in positions of power are listening. Mm. Um, and so the, this kind of sense of, um, I, well, I think the figure, the thing about the Cassandra figure that's interesting is she still feels the need to say it, right? She, she still has to say the catastrophe that's coming, even though she knows that she's cursed and that no one will listen to her, her or, or um, believe her. Um, and I, in some ways, I think that that's, that's a sort of similar place that, that a lot of us find ourselves in right now, where we feel the need to say what we're seeing and what the world is, um, if only to keep ourselves sane, right? Let's just say, like, no, this is reality, um, even as, even as it's hard to believe that a, a poem is going to um, really be heard or, or resonate in a way that's going to materially change um, the circumstances.
say, what to say, what to say. Elgin State Hospital, Elgin, Illinois, 1965-1967 1. In my dream, I see a young white man with a swastika tattooed in tender flesh of his neck, smoking next to a concrete mixer. Prince of Blackwater, what fracked pastures are in his pockets? Why does the daylight embrace him? His soldiers fire biodegradable rounds into the soft flank of the burial mound. What you see is what you get, the world like a fractured lens. 2. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. For you traveled easy as the dollar through subdivisions the color of dehydrated rose. For you walked into the Fox River, fully clothed, as though offering yourself for surgery, river fed by highway brine and mercury, and the river refused to open for you. For you became your father, naked and bloody, in front of the camera, performing the murder of your ancestors. For they refused to enter the room. To be a Jew in the 21st century is to be refused. For the world you love is like a clouded iris. For you built this world, and your children rent it. 3. I walked the long blocks of brick bungalows, and I found myself at the headquarters of the highway patrol. I saw the suburb as though from the high cab of a police cruiser. I thought, I wish America was someone else's problem. The building is, as I feared, abandoned, a discarded place. In the hall, someone has dumped a steel rat trap, loops of black tube, a pile of shattered glass, as if to say, nothing here will be renewed. I take a picture of a winky face, Gatorade blue, slapped at a jaunty angle on the window. I hide under the arch when the rain comes. Information, admission, security. Somehow the lawn remains plump, November green ravished by the rain. Bertrand wanted to build a flexible city, compact, adaptable, contained in circular walls. He wanted to endow a space with nourishing, to leave a smear of honey on the counter at the bodega. One always expects, Mendes de Rocha writes, architecture to deliver extraordinary buildings, which, 
however, change nothing whatsoever.
That was Wilco with Impossible Germany. And to start out that second set, you heard Toby Altman with a poem from Discipline Park that began, I Have an iPhone. We then heard from the Staple Sisters, Chicago's own, with The Weight. And then another poem from Toby that began, In the Camera. Then we heard from Tao in the Get Down, Stay Down with Nobody Dies. And then Toby Altman's poem, Elgin State Hospital. You are tuned in to WXOXLP Louisville. It's 97.1 FM, and it's 100.9 WXND FM, Artex FM. We are featuring the poet Toby Altman today, including work from his soon-to-be-published book, Discipline Park, that will be out on Wendy's Subway. Wendy's Subway is a kind of collective uh, space for reading, writing. It's a community space in Brooklyn, New York. Really looking forward to this book being published. I've got a few more pieces for you today coming up, two pieces of conversation that Toby and I had, a poem from Toby, and we will end the day with Earth, Wind, and Fire. But before that, I just want to say, if you want to learn more about Toby, please visit his website, tobyaltman.com. That's T-O-B-Y-A-L-T-M-A-N. And look up Windy Subway, because they're doing great stuff. Coming up later today, right here on Art FM, will be Aaron Conaway with Rough Draft. Aaron plays a blend of music seldom heard by the masses, punk, hip-hop, freeform jazz, all while paying homage to great local Louisville music. That is tonight, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Tune in for Rough Draft. This is Post Poet Pop. I'm really grateful to y'all for listening in today. Follow us on Instagram at Post Poet Pop. Tune in next week. Thank you. Where do you fit writing, especially poetry writing, into your life? Mm. You you teach, and you have other primary responsibilities, and it seems like we all are kind of somehow raging against time to, mm. to make poetry. Yeah. So. The sort of basic thing that I do is I just try to carve out a little bit of time every day where I'm just reading a book with my notebook in my lap open and and sort of let the book kind of take me wherever it goes. And so in that way, I just generate a lot of raw material, most of which I never use. Um, but, you know, maybe every third or fourth day, um, something pops up that that might end up being useful later. Um, so there's just a kind of generation of a lot of raw fragments and material in that way that I end up kind of collaging together to form poems or that sort of takes on a life of its own. And in that respect, I'm, I'm very much a kind of notebook-oriented writer. Like, I, I like to accumulate a lot of material in my notebook, and I, and I like to let it sit and kind of stew for a long time. Um, so sometimes I'll put things down in the notebook, and then I won't, I won't look at them for two months or three months or something, and then I'll go back and kind of be surprised by the freshness or the strangeness of whatever I was working on in response to what I was reading. I think the, the older I get and the more complicated my life becomes, the harder it is to sustain that kind of daily writing practice. Um, but 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 I do think it is something that I recommend for people who are struggling to fit creativity into their lives. The other thing that I did for this book, of course, is I went to visit a lot of um, Bertrand Goldberg's surviving buildings. And that's a very different kind of writing, although it often involved reading something along with the trip. Like I took a trip to see his building in Phoenix and I brought Daniel Borzutsky's The Performance of Becoming Human with me. And the poem that I wrote is kind of I think is really in conversation with Daniel's work. 
but it's also in conversation with the kind of physical space of Phoenix as a city and my experience of moving through it, um, my experience of traveling, um, my experience of the building, like what it feels like to have a body in response to this kind of monolithic hospital. Do you do, you do like iCloud, Google Docs, or paper notebook? Paper notebook, yep, nice. 100%. Yeah, I think it's really good to, uh, to have a kind of step where you're not looking at a computer because yeah. it means it's a lot harder to edit yourself. <laughs> yeah, you know, absolutely. It's, a, it's just about putting stuff down on a page and not judging what it is. And, you know, I, I might rewrite lines here or there. And I actually, to it, I, I have this system where I kind of divide the page in half and I'll just be writing on one side of the page so that I can add things in or rewrite lines on the other side of the page as it suits me. Um, but nice. for the most part, I'm just writing and I'm not editing. And the notebook kind of frees me to do that. I started doing research on Goldberg and I got really interested in him. And I think he's a kind of... Um, I think he's a really fascinating figure and in some ways a figure who really challenges the way in which we think about what architecture is and can do. And I also, I honestly, I think there's, there's a real sense of sadness and pathos about his career because his ambitions for architecture are really beautiful and are, are really, really amazing. And in almost all, every respects, the society in which he lived um, defeated those ambitions. Um, and so he became for me a kind of, um, a figure who usefully articulates um, the limits of what art can really do uh, in, in the context of a kind of capitalist world. Providence Hospital, Mobile, Alabama, 1982 to 87. Careful to exclude the faces of patients and ambulance staff, I try to photograph it and mostly fail. No one here likes me. In turn, I am not easy, anxious as always to say a lot as if these poems could be complete, a record of a world that has nothing but needs. It survives precisely on the price of insurance. It requires gouged bodies, burnt bodies, torn, handguns that backfire, bursting the barrel. It has been, as usual, redecorated without taste to signal the building's submission to illness. I grow weary describing it. How many pale chapels, how much cement. Oh, great, another hospital. Why did he build so many? And why did he build so much the same? There was nothing else for him to do. He sought the immensity beyond which a building becomes a living thing. He sought the dollars to make his buildings live, but the budget withdrew from him. So what? The budget loves none of us. What he built is just a screen or veil beyond which a bright underwater city waits where the patients are lifted from their beds and taken into blue mystery, breathing easy in the deep, their cancers cured and their bones unbroken, their bodies undressed or stretched, long flagellates that pierce the pores within the budget. Where they travel, no one can say, perhaps into Mobile Bay. And how long until the bay marches up the hill and kisses us, fed by glacial runoff, so that nothing here remains? Nothing personal, anyway. As you return from sleep, the smell of cotton, pralines, salted fish, like the memory of a lovely drug that turned your stomach once. You thought you were traveling into a kiss. You thought you lay on the anatomist's table, gently unfolded by his knife. You were saying how thin a city can be and how damp. Who knows what you meant? Slow down, slow down. No one has invented aspirin yet. 
Your love is a complicated wage, but it keeps the headache barely away. Didn't you live a patriot's life? Isn't your safe word debt? Thank you for choosing providence. If you have a memory, you probably need it badly. For instance, I remember undressing as an adolescent. What is your substance and whereof are you made, I would say, turning my palms up in a gesture of deference. Or I would say, dear Toby, your body is wrong. Signed, your unhappy customers.
understand. Hawthorne.